Emily Bank. On the Empire Podcast this week, we say schnoochie boochies with Kevin Smith. I'm there to entertain. I'm there to, like, forget about that for a few hours. You know, that's my modus operandi as a filmmaker. Escape, motherfucker. Come in here. I'm going to put you in a fake world and shit like that. Plus, we go raving with the director of Beats, Brian Welsh, and his star, Lorne McDonald. We'd be, like, getting up in the morning and blasting Beats through the through the flat before heading to work. <laughs> so all that kind of stuff does kind of work you know yeah. I do think it, it fuels into filming all that and more on the movie podcast though it's quite conflicted about staying at the Continental it's got a lovely spa but a whole lot of bodies as well you don't want that in the hotel that's a two star trip advisor good doggy daycare though that's true that is very very true I don't have a dog I don't have a dog anyway hello pod I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast Helen O'Hara is gallivanting around Europe this week so it is a big old swinging sausage fest here in our brand new studio it's great, isn't it? I mean, it's got windows. It's got a door. It's got James Dyer doing email. It's all very, very exciting. Sorry. Hello, we started. Hi. Yes, yeah, sorry. Right? Oh, yes, I'm back. Yes. Good. I was doing a Terry White. I was just uh, doing a little bit of uh, admin while I was listening to you witter on. Uh-huh. Sorry, what were you saying? Good, that's good. Uh, anyway, James Dyer is here, which is nice, I guess. And also this week we are joined by, uh, you know, he's just a lovable bundle of fun and optimism he is Ben Travis. How Hi, are you? everyone. <laughs> that sounded almost too penny-wise, actually. <laughs> yeah, come down to Hi. the great children. <laughs> How are you, Ben? Uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I am still feeling very conflicted about Game of Thrones this week. Oh. I don't know where I stand on it. If only there was a podcast that could help me There's not, unbundle thankfully, my feelings on it. Sadly, there isn't. If only, ben, if, only, if only there were a weekly TV podcast with built-in Game of Thrones spoilers, especially in every episode. I just thought it was good to get it out of the way, Chris. So he's gonna he's gonna try and smuggle it in at some point. It doesn't point. matter. It will happen again and again and again. I should, it into I should conversations. point out that that for lols, I sabotaged the studio so that when Chris came in, the giant screens that adorn one wall of the studio were emblazoned with the logo of the Pilot TV podcast, just to enrage him. I smashed the TVs. Yeah, I threw them out the window. I went full Led Zeppelin and launched them out the window. Second floor, so it's okay. It, well, I don't think it was an over, overreaction. No, I don't think at all. Pretty, pretty uh, measured. But earlier on today, when Kevin Smith was in this very room, in that very chair, in mm. fact, the uh, the big screens behind you said Empire. They did. And I don't really know why we did that, if I'm honest with you. Because Feels fancy, though, doesn't it? It does feel a little bit fancy. Man, we've got a brand new studio, and it's been custom built to someone's specifications, and, you know, it's all, it's all good. So having big screens and microphones at work and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. It's brilliant. What a utopia. What a time to be alive. It also has padded walls. Is that like a safety feature? Is is this actually some kind of bunker that they yes. just chuck us all when in? James when James and I too much? eventually come to blows over him mentioning pilot TV <laughs> at every possible opportunity on the Empire podcast. Yes, we will be. That's what it's there for. So we don't hurt each other. It's like a soft play. Uh, shall we have a question? Do it. In fact, we have a whole bunch of questions that people have sent in because I forgot to have a question. And so I asked people in a panic uh, and this one comes from at Wes Andersson. So it's Wes Anders, but instead of Wes Anderson, it's a fee where the O should be. Have they Does somehow, that make sense? Yeah. Have they managed to make all of their tweets in Futura, yellow? I don't know. Let me see. Center aligned. Wes Anderson. I've just clicked on their Twitter bio. I don't know anything about films. I just like watching them sometimes. Well, you should be coming on the Empire podcast. You'd be perfect. You'd fit right in. Uh, and this person... Wants to know, if for some unknown reason your last words had to be a film quote, what would it be? There is another <laughs> Skywalker. Yeah, you got to leave the other person 
guessing, right? You got you to yeah. make them think there's some sort so. of mystery. So either that or Rolo Tomasi. <laughs> and then they're like, what the fuck is Rolo Tomasi? Then they keep going around asking. I would go for, after careful consideration, I've decided not to endorse your park. Wow, that's a good one. That's if you'd been mauled by a dinosaur. Really, if you hadn't, mm. then it would just be weirdly out of context. Or in just any other park I happen to die in. I would not endorse a park that I died in. I have been, <laughs> and always will be, your friend. Oh, see, that's, it wouldn't be a dry eye in the house. Yeah. Even at your death, it would be celebrations and, and jubilation. In, in and your case, it'd be, it would be, it came from behind. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd probably go out with, that's not a knife. <laughs> Yes, it is. Oh, and then I'd be swiftly disabused of that notion, yeah. <laughs> and off I go. All right, okay. So Andrew Jones at Ethan Runt asks: A train leaves Herefordshire by plane, going 220 miles an hour, whilst a tank parachutes out of a space shuttle just under the stratosphere of Stratford upon Avon, hurtling down at 531 miles per hour, winds blowing easterly. Will Hobbs and Shaw save the day? Is this one of the riddles that Jeremy Irons gives Bruce Willis and Die Hard with a Vengeance? Yes, I think so. I mean, I don't think there's anything that um, Jason Statham and The Rock couldn't save us from, so I'm going to say yes. There's a shot in the most recent trailer. I think it's Jason Statham punching Idris Elba whilst Idris Elba punches The Rock, all in one motion, which John Nugent has claimed is a thirsty three-way. It's it's like the human punchipede. (laughs) What's a thirsty three-way? I honestly don't know. It's it's one of the things that millennials do, I think. Mmm... Uh, at CC Tabet asks, are film fans more spoiled today or has the internet slash click economy just made them louder? And this might be a reference, of course, to the, the people throwing their toys at the pram about all kinds of things, but most recently, a little bit of Avengers Endgame, but also mainly Game of Thrones. Yeah. This week, there was a petition. A petition has been launched by a bunch of dickheads that uh, <laughs> want the most recent season of Game of Thrones to be remade, presumably until it fits their exact creative specifications. Or they'll just have to keep launching petitions until they're happy. And then Cersei summons the Kraken and Jamie uses the Force and Darth Vader. It's going to be a ridiculous fanboy mashup, isn't it? Just nonsense, isn't it? Mm. Just leave it alone. Stop being idiots. I'd sign that petition that says stop being idiots about the Game of Thrones season 8 remake thing. Because I feel very conflicted about this season. But that whole feeling of ownership and demanding... A different ending and demand. Oh, it's oh, just young people. Are you're allowed to not bent. like it. Just don't think that the creators of the show are in any way indebted to you whatsoever. Like I thought, there was a, a good tweet about it. I can't remember who wrote it, so I'm sorry if it was you. Just saying, you do know that the lady who kidnaps the writer and tortures him until he uh, gives her the ending that she wants in misery. She was the bad guy. You do know that, right? That's not who you should aspire to be. Annie Wilkes is just a stand-in for the internet. Pretty much. Hmm. Uh, all right, one last question from at 27 Club Reject, who simply has included a picture of David Cameron's forthcoming memoir for the record and asks, cast film adaptation of this. In case you don't know who David Cameron is, he's no relation to James Cameron. David Cameron is a former prime minister of this country. And David Cameron is the man who essentially authored Brexit with the referendum a few years ago. And also there were some pig-related allegations going around <laughs> as well. So there's quite a lot of stuff in this book to be covered by this man. What do we think? Who's going to play David Cameron? Kermit the Frog. Kermit the Frog? It covers no, off the pig he... angle, doesn't it? Yeah. 
He would never, though. You can't take something as pure and wholesome and purely good as Kermit the Frog and have him play David Cameron. Kermit the Frog, wrong. who has been on this very podcast. What? Yeah. Kermit and Pepe the Prawn came on the podcast oh, as guests once. That's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Mm. Oh, my God. How did that work? Well, I don't understand. They, the two of them came in, presumably in a cab. They came, <laughs> they sat down, we did the podcast, we had did a they walk in? and they left. They walked in? Well, they weren't carried in, yes. Of course they walked in. Of their own accord? Of their own accord. Yes. On their own two feet? On their own two feet. And whatever prawns have? Yes. Well, I did discuss <laughs> this uh, with Pepe the Prawn. He's a king prawn. Turns out he's not the king of prawns. He's just right. a king prawn. He's just prawn. a king prawn. Yeah, yeah. we discussed his lineage. Quick question. Mm. Which of the Muppets do you think would be the tastiest? I mean, it's sad to say, but it is Miss Piggy, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah, got to be it, Miss Piggy. It really is. Miss Garby. Yeah. Although Pepe the Prawn, king prawns. Well, they have those cows. Do you remember the Muppet cows that used to come on just munching things? Yeah. yeah. They'd, They'd be make good. a good burger. What is Beaker and how would he taste? Beaker is my spirit animal uh-huh. and he would taste like panic and chemicals. He <laughs> <laughs> would, it's true. So Pepe the Prawn would, would, would taste nice. Miss Piggy would taste lovely. Kermit the Frog. Okay. Frog's legs. That'd be all right, wouldn't it? This is so upsetting. Rolf. You couldn't eat Rolf. How would Rolf no, taste? No, you can't eat Rolf. No? He's a dog. Why not? Dogs are friends, not food. This is the talking dog who plays the piano. I think we're beyond that now. No, but yeah, but his his ability to talk and or play the piano is kind of secondary right. to the fact that he's a dog. Also, I do not eat the, dogs. Let's try and get back to sentient. That kind of makes him more horrifying. Yeah, but no. so is Pepe and Kermit. And, oh and you know, Piggy. Then maybe the takeaway is Don't not that it's a Muppet takeaway meal that we should eat, <laughs> is that we shouldn't eat the Muppets. That's, that's, that's fair. I yeah. think he's right. Yeah, Chris, I think he's right. What about Mr. Snuffleupagus? He's not a Muppet. He's part of the Sesame Street gang. You cannot branch out into into different, you know, canons. Same thing. No, it's not. It's, the same it's thing. not the same thing. It's completely separate. There was only one crossover character between the Muppets and Sesame Street, and that was Kermit. But you have got the Muppet Show full of Muppets. You've got uh-huh. Sesame Street full of the residents of Sesame Street, and Kermit, who kind of moonlights and flips between the two. Right. But he is the crossover. There is no other crossover. He spans the the He's the MCU, ben- the Muppet CU, okay. and the SSCU, which is not as Nazis. No, that sounds bad. <laughs> that sounds bad. So Kermit endorses the Muppets, but he not does. SS. No, he no he endorses Kermit. Loves the SS. He's all about he the does. SS. Kermit started as a Muppet. He joined the SS. Yep. And yet he remains a Muppet, even though secretly he is also a member of the SS. Okay. Some of my favorite characters are from the SS. <laughs> well, and not this. I believe not the Muppets. Yeah. All right. So you got your your Bert and Ernie. They're brilliant, right? Mm-hmm. The one who lives in the bin. Oscar Oscar Oscar? Cookie yeah. Monster, I love Cookie, Cookie Monster. Monster. Mm. Oh my God, Cookie Monster would taste amazing. You know why? Over the years, mm. yes, he has. He's become infused with cookies. It'd be like eating a massive meaty Oreo. And let me tell you from experience that those things are fucking amazing. Imagine the uh, lemon and herb wings on Big Bird. Oh my God, that's a Nando's you'd never forget. If you went full butterfly Big Bird and you come in and it's just like there's a massive, massive plate. And all you can hear in the background of this huge Sesame Street Nando's is the sound of Mr. Snuffleupagus softly weeping. It's important that we, we state now that veganism is the environmental choice. Yes. And of course, by eating them up, but you would be practicing that because you'd be eating felt. Yeah. How right. we get on to this? David Cameron uh, will be played in the movie by Toby Paul- Jones. Yes. And then he gets eaten by a dinosaur again. <laughs> that would be great. That seems fair. Actually, no, now you said dinosaurs, I'm thinking Ray Spall would be pretty good. Do you not think? He's about the right age. Mm. 
Anyway, so Toby Jones is playing Rafe's Ball as David Cameron and Big Bird would be the tastiest of all the Muppets and he is a Muppet and also a member of the SS. We've learned a lot about ourselves today. Uh, if you want to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast, as many, many people found out at your cost today, you can get in touch with us. Find a number of methods. We're on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast or just wait for me to tweet out something in a panic and then respond to that. We're on Facebook as well as Empire Magazine and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com. Time now for our first guest this week. He is something of a legend as a writer and a director and an actor where he has produced the likes over the years of Clark's, Mallrats, Chasing Amy, Dogma, Clark's 2, Red State. He is, of course, Kevin Smith, and he was in town this week to do a live podcast at the O2, no less. Not the big main arena, but the Indigo 02, where we were a few years ago. Uh, lovely venue. Very, very good. He was there doing a, a Hollywood Babylon live show with Ralph Garman and then agreed very, very graciously to come in today to have a nice chat with us on the Empire podcast. And Ben and I went along. In fact, he came here. He came here to our very, very, yeah. very first guest in our, our, our new custom-built booth. Who better to christen the podcast studio than King of Podcasts? Oh, Kevin my Smith. God. And Kevin Smith was there as well. Oh, I so said you mean he's the king of podcasts in this scenario. Anyway, so we were delighted to have Kevin Smith on the podcast. Now, as you might imagine, if you have heard any Kevin Smith interviews over the years, the man is a talker, and he talked and talked and talked. So what you're about to hear right now is a 15-minute excerpt of his podcast chat with Ben and myself. And then if you want to hear more Kevin Smith talking about Jane Silent Ball reboot, about his recent heart attack all that sort of stuff, that'll be going up as a special later on, probably over the weekend, so you'll be able to listen to the whole thing in its unexpurgated form. Sound good? Sounds very good. Sounds good to me. Here we go. Here's Ben and myself, but mainly, actually, just Kevin Smith. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> yeah. fair. Uh, here is Kevin Smith. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by a man who is a director, a writer, an actor, and he knows his way around a podcaster too. Okay, I'm a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> this, I was waiting for that one. I was like, this, this is the only reason I get to be here because I'm good at that. That's a fucking pinnacle of your career, isn't it, Kevin? It Smith? really is. Yeah. It was actually this kind of second act in many ways. Like uh, when film dried up for a minute, like, and I, you know, to be fair, I dried it up, right? I was like, I'm done. I'm retiring and shit. Podcasts kind of fueled me, not just like, spiritually because it was very you know like oh this is kind of punk rocky mm -hmm. like you could just come up with a name for your band and you don't really need to know but four chords and you sit down with friends and mm -hmm. like just pretend because you've seen people do it your whole life and like oh now we're doing it and shit like it's same way that like you know the fucking kids from joy division discovered that they would be new order and like fucking that music was part of their lives like oh we're good at this and like that's kind of what what we did it wasn't like this will be the plan it was just kind of like oh that that happened and oh it worked and oh this kept working and then i got to a point where i was like i don't want to do this anymore and podcasting took on that same electric vibe that film had had for me where it's like you mean anybody can do this like anybody could just like nobody's gonna stop us so podcasting was even easier because it required like no means whatsoever and because of all the laser disc commentary tracks I was ready. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, I was ready to chat. So, yeah, I, I've, it was beautiful. And then, ironically, like, podcasting 
then fueled like a stage of the movies with Tusk and, mm. and yoga hosers and then the forthcoming Moose Jaws. And and honestly, now I feel like I'm getting to a place in my career where it's like I'm, my evolution or 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 line of from here to there starts with fandom. And I really feel in my heart of hearts it ends in fandom as well. I don't think I go out directing a movie. Um, I and not I'm not like doing the I'm going to retire thing. I just think that like making movies is less of a priority to me than the convenience and ease and wonder of sitting down and talking to somebody. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. and I understand like now the podcasting game is fucking crowded, man. Everybody's got, I saw a billboard for a Ron Burgundy podcast, uh-huh. a fucking billboard for a podcast. Yeah. Like the beauty of this pool was that we were all equal to some <laughs> degree. I mean, but I say that as the guy who started a podcast coming from the world of film. Yeah. So I had a bit of an advantage too, you know yeah. what I'm saying? But then when I see somebody else have a big, bigger advantage, I'm like, that ain't right. We got to keep it ours. <laughs> and it's not mine. You know, that's just the way you feel and stuff. But yeah, podcasting, like to me is, is right up there with the filmmaker title. And I always kind of pop it first. And I know, if, I don't know if I do that for like, effect or if i truly feel like well that's what i am in my heart of hearts but i can see myself going back to a place of not making movies and just talking about them and mm-hmm. you can see it happening right now it's like 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 uh i would you know, people are like don't you want to make a marvel movie and i was like fuck no i would love to do an hour-long fucking review of it like where i just talk about all the awesome parts because that's what i'm <laughs> equipped to do that's what I've been doing since childhood. Yeah. Like, you know, the fucking uh, Avengers review that I put up on, on the channel that everybody seemed to like. That doesn't require talent. That requires passion. And I got passion, you know, about a boatload. Talent is negligible. But <laughs> I should be a siren cry for everybody out there who's like, fuck, man. Like, it really doesn't take talent to be in that but, business. But there is talent, though, Kevin. Because, you know, I've I've been lucky enough to see you it's not stand up, but it's as close to stand up as mm. I think you can possibly get. And you know, I've seen you hold court at Comic Con. I've seen you hold court in your live shows. That's just talking. You talk, it's just talking, but it's talking really fucking funny <laughs> uh, for two hours, two sometimes even longer than that. Yeah, and without Try. a script, without any preparation. So there's talent there. I mean, you know, I couldn't do that. Ben, pro- you could do that, Ben. I'm sure you could probably do that, but I would just be going, um, uh, um. <laughs> I do that too. If you go back and watch the. Um, Stan Lee uh, was it Marvel's Mutants and Monsters like I've been so lucky across the course of my career because I was in what they call an early adopter on shit that really wasn't early adopting I like comic books everybody a lot of people liked comic books at one point I just talked about it a lot in the movies so that when people were like we need a comic book something they <laughs> would think of me so like I wound up um who was it? Mike Stratford, who was a great guy, who was responsible for like, almost responsible for like uh, the secondary career. I guess I've had a couple careers, not just podcasting and film, but like of me standing on a stage and talking for money, so to speak. Mm-hmm. He was the guy. He had went to like Academy show. I did. I did a gig at the Academy in two thousand one. A Q and A, kind of like what I always do. And he went to it because he was in town, you know, because that's where he lived in Hollywood and stuff. He worked at Columbia TriStar. We met doing the Dogma DVD. He was the the creator of the special features on a DVD. He was the guy that, like, pushed that medium forward and stuff. Um, so he saw it and he was like, that's funny, man. You should do that. Did you ever record those? And I was like, no, not at all. It never occurred to me to do that. 
And he was like, you should do it. He's going, I want to pitch a series, an evening with a bunch of directors. So it would be like you and Quentin Tarantino and Michael Moore and Barry Sonnenfeld. He goes, Barry's a great storyteller, which I've heard like for years that Barry's a really great storyteller. So the idea was there'd be a bunch of filmmakers and I was going to be the first. And so he went and uh, I was going to do some college gigs. And he said, can we just piggyback and shoot those shows? Uh, I said, oh, my God, absolutely. And what I was thinking was, so stupid. If we shoot these shows and there's a DVD, then colleges could just play a DVD. I won't have to fly to all these places to tell these stories. Like, I'll never have to tell the Superman story again because it'll be on wax and shit. And what it did instead was created a whole other business where people were like, Come speak here now. Like, I, I had, like, a great run in the 90s in terms of when Clerks happened, I was just young enough for college kids to be like, hey, man, he ain't that fucking far removed from us and stuff. Mm -hmm. So for a good 10-year stretch, I was, like, the college Q&A king because he works in the business. He seems to know some famous fucking people, <laughs> which they like that. And, uh, like, he's willing to come chit-chat, and he's pretty frank and stuff. And it was this weird business that, like, I kind of backed into. I first started doing it out of Christian guilt because, like, Mallrats tanked. And this university in Delaware was showing the movie. And they were like, we're showing Mallrats. Like, you're in New Jersey. You're not that far. Would you come speak after after the movie? And I was like, God, that movie didn't do well. I should <laughs> go speak. Like, I was still doing penance and stuff. So I drove out to Delaware. And, and what I discovered was my favorite part of the filmmaking process it ain't writing it. It ain't making it. It's not cutting it. It's not releasing it. It's sitting in the audience with people that want to see it. Like that became my favorite thing. And that's what I like. My career is kind of driven toward like the Red State Tour and Jay and Silent Bob super groovy cartoon movie. And then probably with Jay and Silent Bob reboot. We'll tour it because it's not like back in the day. It'd be like, hey, it's playing in Dallas and you're not there. And how's it playing? It's doing great. I know I can't be there for every fucking exhibition public exhibition of the movie but i was for red state yeah. in red state's life i was at every fucking public screening of that movie even over here and you stayed and watched it every single time every fucking time the end. i was such a fan of that movie and more so a fan of the audience discovering that movie for the first time because yeah. that movie was a real like let me see if i could be a good filmmaker like somebody just said we had a, after the the show last night at the o2 there was a, a woman backstage with this guy and uh, they were chit-chatting with me and she had just fallen down the rabbit hole of my stuff but she started with Red State. She started with Red State. Oh. So I was like, boy, it must have been a real fucking disappointing <laughs> journey after that for you. And she's like, you know, there's good stuff, but like, there's nothing like Red State. She's like, you should do that more often. And she's like, it's just so angry. And I was like, but I can't because I'm not angry. Mm -hmm. I was like, that movie is like a one-off. That was me going like, let me see if I could have been a really great filmmaker. Like if I, let me see if I could have been a Coen Brothers or, or, or Quentin. That's my movie where I try to be the most like the filmmakers who I admire. And so you could look at that movie, strip my name off and show people that movie. They would never think like, oh, it's a fucking Kevin Smith movie. It kind of works without my name on it and works even better without my fucking name. The same way that recently uh, Detective Comics 1000 came out and I wrote like an eight page story in it. Um, and the story didn't have my credit until the last page. And so a bunch of people were like, I loved that story. Then I saw your name, <laughs> um, which was like their way of like, I was never going to like that story if I saw your name first because yeah. I would have viewed it through the filter of fucking like, oh, here we go. Yeah. And so Red State was like that for me. Red State was I was describing to the woman because she was like, why don't you do more like that? And I was like, 
that's that was me just trying to like show that I could do it, but that's not what's in my heart and soul. Like you're right, that's an angry little fucking movie, but like I'm not that angry in real life. Like I'm the guy you go to when you're angry. That's what I like to be for people. <laughs> when people are like, I hate this fucking world and shit's going wrong, and like you know, back in the states, Alabama just fucking outlawed abortion. Yeah. I left yeah. the state for one week. <laughs> I leave the states, and fucking the whole country went to hell. So, you know, a lot of people maybe want you to say something. Uh-huh. But they don't need me to fucking be like, I hate this shit. Because what is an echo chamber? Hmm. What they need me to do is take their fucking minds off it. Like, I'm there to entertain. I'm there to, like, forget about that for a few hours. You know, that's my modus operandi as a filmmaker. Escape, motherfucker. Come in here. I'm going to put you in a fake world and shit like that. So I like to be the person that people turn to when they're like, I fucking hate this sick old world. And, you know, they come over and make them laugh or show them something or they hear something. And they're like, oh, you know what? It ain't fucking a bad. What what the Avengers is for me, what those Marvel movies is for me, are for me. Like, the thing that makes it okay when shit's really gone south in the rest of the world. Like, where it's like, you know what? World can't be all that bad. Look at these fucking amazing movies. Like, somebody gives a shit out there. Like, there's... There's hope or whatever the fuck. Mm. I, I like to be the person that they, they don't go to with their to be more angry. I don't want to share their anger, like because I already do. But they don't need to hear that. Just like people are always like, "You fucking love everything that you talk about." You're always blowing every comic book movie, and I was like, "That's not true." But I do blow the ones that I talk about hardcore and shit. You can see it all over my mouth. <laughs> but you'll never hear about the shit that I don't like, and I don't like a lot of stuff. A lot of fucking shit I don't like. Tons. There's more I don't like than I do like. But why would I fucking tell you about that? Like, I've already wasted my time with it and shit. I'm not going to waste your time being like, oh, avoid this. Because the thing that I want to avoid could be the fucking crucible for you. The thing mm-hmm. that saves your fucking life and shit. Mm-hmm. Some people are like, oh, ew, you just want to be liked. I'm like, no, nah, that's not it. It's really because I don't make shit that's necessarily cuddly and stuff. Mm-hmm. I just don't. They don't need me to be mad. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? They, people are mad enough. So Red State, like, she was responding to, like, the ferocity and the anger of the film. And I was like, I can't do that because I don't feel that naturally. Like, that's that's really something that I have to fucking channel and throw in. And at the end of the day, like, that movie was more about me proving something to myself mm. than the rest of the world. I was like, I was explaining it to her. I was like, do you ever see that movie, The Freshman, with uh, Matthew Broderick and... and, um, and Marlon Brando. Yeah. There's a scene in The Freshman where he goes to see uh, Matthew Broderick in college, and he's, like, leaning in the door of his dorm and shit, and he goes, like, uh, it's the end of the scene. And it's a real throwaway fucking line, but, it, like, it sticks with me, and it fucking shapes my decisions and shit like that, or justifies my decisions, or I use it to justify things I've done. He goes, he looks around, Marlon Brando, he goes, so this is college? He goes, I didn't miss anything. And he walks out. <laughs> And that's what I, like, after Red State, I was like, so this is what it's like to make a a classy film, a Mm. good film. I didn't miss anything, you know, and I went back (laughs) to doing what I like doing the best because that's that's what I want to do. Like, those are the movies that that I want to see, like, you know, the weird fucking Kevin Smith movies, of which now Red State's one of them. And I guess the problem with showing people that you can be more and do more is that they're like, well, the bar has been raised. But I'm like, the bar was raised that one time. I'm back down here now. That was Kevin Smith. Uh, ben, you're a huge Kevin Smith fan. I am mm. a huge Kevin Smith fan as well. I've had the pleasure of his company on, on a few occasions. This was your first time. Uh, what did you make of him? I mean, it's one of those things that there was a, an immediate sense of kind of familiarity, a, a one-sided familiarity from my point, 
because I do listen to all of his podcasts and he was one of the first directors who I really clicked onto. I watched all of the Viewers Universe films when I was probably way too young. Me and my mate in school used to do the Jay and Silent Bob rap when I think we were in like year eight or year nine. So that was deeply inappropriate pretending to sell drugs to everyone else. <laughs> and he was one of those first people aside from like the big Spielberg and, and all that lot where you're like, oh, this is a filmmaker with a voice and he made all these films and he brings himself to all of these films and does very different things but that are all him he was one of the first filmmakers as i was kind of growing up who that really clicked about and i've kind of yeah followed pretty much all of his films since then i mean his podcast output is absolutely insane he puts out several kind of multiple hour shows a week and it was great to have him in here because he just did exactly what kevin smith does is that in that you you give him a bit of a prompt and then he's off telling stories and remembering things and talking up um jane silent bob reboot which i can't wait to see um especially because the distance between the last film in that universe uh clerks 2 which was 2006 the distance between that and now is already longer than the gap between the first Clerks and, and Clerks 2, which was 94 to 2006. Mm. So it's been so long that we've been out of that universe and it sounds like it's just going to be a huge celebration of everything that came before. So It's been too long. I'm, I'm, frankly, I'm just glad to have him A, alive and B, making yes. movies again. I think even by his own admission, he's had an interesting detour creatively the last few years. He's moved away from making the movies that made his name and he's made some stranger, weirder movies, not always entirely successful. But it'll be good to see how Jan Silent Bob reboot turns out. Hopefully, fingers crossed, it'll be an absolute belter. And the first of many. Mm -hmm. I would love to see a Clark's 3. I know that might be problematic. I'd love to see a Mallrats 2. Let's see what happens. Anyway, should we talk about some movie news? Go for it. What have you got? I got a really, really random bit of movie news, which which I found quite exciting. And it's not so much movie news as it is TV news, but it's nothing to do with Pilot, I promise. It was a random one. So did you watch the TV BAFTAs that were last Sunday? I caught the end of it. There's a really random category that you wouldn't normally pay any attention to. So it was, it was like short form programs. It's like a short thing. But I loved the detail that the person who won it for this little short called Missed Call, she shot the entire thing on her iPhone, which is much like mm. Soderbergh did with Unsane. But, but, and this is the best bit, her son did the score for this, also on his iPhone, on GarageBand, but sold the rights to her for a pair of new trainers. And frankly, that is now what I'm going to do. So for every episode of the podcast I do, I would like to get a pair of trainers, please. I mean, we're going to need more ads. But that's how it's happening now. So now movies are being made for pairs of trainers. This is, this is the new world order. This is true, and we should update you actually on Avengers Endgame's uh, box office. It has made 43 pairs of Converse's over the last... I was about to say, it has made a lot of fucking trainers. Yeah, All really the has. shoes. More yeah. shoes. More shoes. Oh. So many shoes. All the... Uh, hang on, I'm going to say a, a shoe manufacturer's name now. Wait a minute. Clark's. <laughs> I bottled it at the last minute. I was going... Hang on, there's Louis Fiton, but he doesn't make shoes. No, he doesn't. He, Christian yeah, he does. Louboutin? Yeah, you get, you get Christian Louboutin? Louboutin? See, now, ben, Louboutin Ben's shoes. a bit of a, a trainer connoisseur. I would be if I had money. No. I'd like to look at them on the internet. You do. Then... Like, you you got, like, limited edition shit, haven't you? Um, well, GIFs and, and JPEGs. <laughs> you, have, you have some yeah. JPEGs. You've got some really JPEGs nice. some really incredible trainers. Yeah, come around. I'll show you my folder of nice shoes that I can't buy. <laughs> I have some news that doesn't involve either iPhones or trainers. And it is that Chris Rock is rebooting the Saw franchise. And there's going to be one coming to us from Lionsgate in, uh, next year, in 2020. I can't get my head around this at yeah, all. Yeah, neither can I. But it's a thing that's happening. He said he's been a fan of Saw since the first one came out in 2004. And he's very excited by the opportunity to, you know, dive back into, I guess, the horror porn genre. 
This is incredible. This is like, what's next? Jerry Seinfeld making the human centipede four. <laughs> what is it well. with people sewing their faces to the anus of the person in front of them? <laughs> that's, that's, what's up with that? Kramer coming in with like, he opens the door and he's got 15 people attached to him. Oh. <laughs> anyway, so this, this is going to be directed by Darren Lynn Boosman, who directed Saws 2, 3 and 4. So I guess it's going to be in the long, the long grand tradition. He took some time off for a, a Boosman's holiday. Oh, God. Would you like some more news? No. Okay. Yes, go on. Uh, Jermaine Clement has joined the Avatar sequels. He's going to be a marine biologist named Dr. Ian Garvin. Wow. Yeah. As we know, Avatar 2 will take place in a great deal underwater among reefs and swimming things and, yep. you know, diving Navi. And he's going to be marine biologizing. Yes, indeed. This is uh, interesting. We presume this is for the live action portion, that we're not going to see uh, Jermaine Clement as a big blue Navi because they've completed that well, portion of the movies, right? It, I will say it's, like it's Dr. Ian Garvin. It's not the best Navi name, is it? No, but he might become, he might download his avatar into a, a Navi body. Possible. It's just possible. like Jake Sully did in the first movie. <laughs> Jake Sully, yes, indeed. Mm. He should be appearing in Avatar 2, which, of course, has been pushed back. It's now coming out on uh, 17th December, isn't it, 2021? Yes. I've seen a lot of people online because I don't think people really know that these movies have been filming for a while. I've yep. seen a lot of people going, oh, it's been pushed back, so clearly it's in trouble, and they're casting people, so you know, what does that mean? Is it is it all over the place? No, Cameron's yeah. done the mocap stuff. All the Navi stuff. stuff. The mocap stuff is done. done. It's just the live-action yeah. location stuff. Yeah, yeah. and oh, that's, yeah, now he, that's why he's casting the likes of Edie Falco and yeah. even Finn yeah, Diesel. Yeah. Although we haven't had full confirmation of that, but it does look like Finn Diesel will be in these movies. Yeah. And, I am uh, <laughs> Uh, I am home tree. Yes, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> and now we have uh, Jermaine Clement, which is which is fun. Yeah, it's a good role for him. I hope he gets to use some of those comedic sensibilities. Mm. For example, I was thinking the other day, someone raised the uh, the memory of Men in Black Three, where he's the bad guy, now, oh, and he gets so nothing awful. funny to do it's whatsoever. Yeah. Now, James, I know you don't think he's funny anyway, because no, no, he, no, 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 he no. does the comedy. He does do the comedy. However, he was in charge of bringing what we do in the shadows to TV, and that finally came to the UK this week, which is very, very exciting. And it's really, really good. It comes to the UK this week. It's yeah, on it's, Sunday. Yeah, yeah. it's on yeah. oh, okay. this Sunday. Oh, Sunday. Oh, so God. it finally... Okay, but it's... <laughs> it's, uh, like it's been out in the States for ages, but finally <laughs> it came to the UK. And uh, we reviewed it on the Pilot TV podcast. Oh, so while cool. we're on something Taika Waititi related, it's not really news because everyone knows it, but he did call Hitler an effing C-bomb this week, which was pretty great uh, in an interview wow. with Deadline. I think maybe at Cannes or around Cannes, he's starting to talk about Jojo Rabbit, which has been dated in the US. It's like October, I think now. Mm -hmm. And they asked him, oh, so did you, obviously he's playing Hitler or a boy's imaginary friend who takes the form of Hitler. And the interview asked him, did you do any like research? What did you do? And he said, I did no research. I just put on a mustache. Everyone knows that Hitler was an effing C-bomb. So that was fun. That's good. In less sweary news... The Game of Thrones guys, it's confirmed that their Star Wars films will be the next Star Wars films. What a wonderful week when everyone is so pro Benioff and Weiss. Yes. Um, they've chosen... I, I, it was <laughs> miraculous timing, yeah. wasn't it? The internet is on fire. They are burning those two showrunners in effigy. And they're like, hey, guess what? Kids, Star Wars is coming and these are the guys doing it. <laughs> I felt a great disturbance in the force. It was like <laughs> millions of voices cried out in terror on Twitter and were suddenly silenced. Yeah. Ryan Johnson going, <laughs> Thank, thanks for taking the heat off. 
That's amazing. So I don't watch Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. but uh, my understanding is that this week's episode featured some developments that were received less than rapturously uh, by people on the internet. So they're not they're not particularly happy with Messrs. Uh, Benioff and and Vice at the moment. But yes. uh, you know, we've got three years before this movie comes out, and we don't know what it is yet. We don't even know how involved they're going to be, and we but, presume they're not going to direct it. Well, they've got three years, as you said, and in that time, they've got to remake the whole season eight of Game of Thrones. So they're going to be quite busy. <laughs> I mean, the Game of Thrones thing is so tricky because they gave us so much undeniably great, universally loved stuff from that show. And I know that was when they were adapting the books. But they were in a fairly uniquely tricky position of starting this adaptation and having to kind of go to where the books were and then take that leap to go into that kind of unexplored territory. Whereas this Star Wars thing, obviously they're going to have to work within whatever corner of the Star Wars universe they choose, Mm -hmm. but they get to decide the story from the beginning. They get to make all the rules themselves. I I, I don't think it's enough to... uh take against them purely if I don't know also can we not turn on them please like I I feel a bit like it's been very harsh there have been a lot of mixed feeling about this eighth season I have enjoyed it enormously I did not like the fifth episode it has to be said as a lot of people didn't but I haven't written off the show because one episode wasn't what I wanted it to be I think mistakes were made but that's it's like you know they've had a pretty good hit to miss ratio yeah, so, there's a reason you know, why everyone is so, so invested absolutely. in that show. And it's because they did a really incredible job of yeah. bringing it to the screen kind of in a way that unified people for a long time before yes. the latest before development. Before the bells. Yes. And presumably then they've been hired for Star Wars because of their track record of developing a fantasy based on something left behind by a bearded bloke called George. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It all fits. It yeah, does. It all fits. Yeah, I'm I, I don't know how to feel about this to be honest. Uh, but they're they're clearly smart, capable guys. I'm sure people are now scoffing at that and demanding a petition that we remake this episode of the Empire Podcast. We will not we will not bow to you. This just feels a bit of a storm in the teacup, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, this whole business. And uh, you oh, know, yeah, if so. if it sticks a landing on Sunday people will be you know, singing her praises. Yeah, exactly and, that. They'll forget all about it. Yeah. And then if the landing is a disaster, then it, hilariously, and this will happen, people will now write off eight years of Game of Thrones if they make one bad episode. This is very true. Um, what else? Bond 25 is yes. facing another delay. Yeah. Oh, it just... I, I, I really want this to be the great send-off that Daniel Craig's Bond deserves. But it's just such an unfortunate incident that he's injured his ankle on the set of Bond 25 so I think they've halted production for a few days before getting back on board with things but the release date is is less than a year away at this point so it's about 11 months I think until until that film's supposed to come out so hopefully that'll be the last of the delays on that it's going to be a tight turnaround Fairly, I mean, but Bond's yeah. never CG heavy. It's not. Yeah. It's the post. Apart from Dying of the Day, everybody's favourite. Oh, <laughs> the, the wave and the car. Weirdly, I was listening to the song for that this morning. Mm. I couldn't tell you why, but I was. The worst Bond theme by a country mile, and I include All Time High. It's quite a good uh, running song, though. It's got a high BPM. No matter how fast you run, you can't outrun <laughs> that song. Well, this so is why no. it makes you run fast. But yes, it's on my running playlist. It's good to know. What, that, what else is on your running playlist? Um, Rocky theme from Rocky is on there that's a good one Either Tiger's on there as well mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the big main theme tune from the game Halo randomly is on there I'm not quite sure why uh, Aliens uh, there's the Bishop's uh, Countdown Bishop's Countdown is, is James Warner's Bishop's Countdown is on there 
I don't really remember because the last time I ran was about eight years ago. So it's hard to say. <laughs> so, so you were listening to your running playlist this while morning, walking, but, but not from running. the station to the office. Yes, that's exactly what I was doing. Walking quickly, or not really. It? No, <laughs> whilst breaking into a mild yeah. trot. I was, it was a kind of a, a leisurely amble while holding a cup of tea. A single bead of sweat. Yeah. And I was like, that's cardio for the day, Dan. <laughs> um, this is kind of par for the course now with these things, really, isn't it? But uh, I'm sure they'll they'll shoot around it and hopefully Mr. Craig will recover quickly and then they can get the uh, the film made. There you go. We should talk a little bit about the uh, Avengers Endgame box office because it just hit the $2.5 billion mark at the worldwide box office but is slowing down quite a bit. And so I'm not so sure that it's the shoe-in anymore to overtake Avatar that I thought it was two weeks ago. Really? It has $300 million to go. And you would say that it will get there, but it's not getting there as quickly as it once did. And perhaps this is, of course, the side effect of such a huge opening. Whereas Avatar opened relatively solidly and unspectacularly and just it was a little engine that could it just kept, kept going. going just mm. kept on going Endgame opens to 1.2 billion and almost blows itself out in that time uh, and has only doubled it only doubled 1.2 billion I don't know what do we What do we think I mean obviously it's still got a few more weeks to go in theatrical around the world but I think it's pretty much open in every territory hand on heart if you were a betting podcast is it going to beat Avatar yes or no see I, I initially said absolutely hell no no way and then when it opened I was like oh it, you know it it might. It actually might. Now, though, I think I'm leaning back towards it may not. I think it's going to drop slightly short unless it gets re-released at some point. I don't think it's going to It's gonna top Avatar. I think it'll make it, but it'll take a couple of weeks. Obviously, it's going to have a lot more competition now that we're entering fully the sort of full swing of summer blockbuster season. Obviously, we've got Aladdin next week, which will be a big draw for like families and that yeah, kind of thing. That'll put a dent in this box office. Who yes, <laughs> let's go see that Aladdin movie. All the clips look so good, is what the what, kids what? are saying, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's a whole new world. It really is. But I mean, th- there's nothing else quite on the scale of something like Endgame. You've, uh, it's still a few weeks until Godzilla and Doc Phoenix, so it has a bit more of a run as the main big summer yeah, smashy. And obviously it's a very different audience for John Wick, which is the only other kind of action yeah. competition it's going to be facing. Who would win in a fight between Thanos and John Wick? John Wick. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, having seen John Wick 3 and seen exactly, exactly that. what he does. Yeah, absolutely John Wick. <laughs> oh, oh, poor naive children. It would be Big Bird. Yeah. Big Bird would win this one. No, Thanos. Of course Thanos. He took down the fucking Hulk. The Hulk. John Wick is a man, Wick. is a lovely man with a lovely haircut and a very, very nice suit and his gunplay skills are admirable. But no. Come John on, Wick John Wick with the Infinity take, Gauntlet. John Wick would take those stones off him and shove him up his great big purple ass. John Wick has had the shit beaten out of him repeatedly in this series. Admittedly, he did need saving by Willem Dafoe on several occasions, but there's neither here nor there. That's the thing that always gets me about I that, know. right? It's like when he's in that chair and he's going, people keep asking me if I'm back. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm back. And it's like, you're tied to a chair about to be killed. How is this back? What is going on? Anyway. Yeah. I think he could win if he had the dogs the attack dogs that are in John Wick 3 that are just going around crunching everyone's nuts if one of them like runs straight up to Thanos chomp on the nuts then John Wick pops in with like a pencil or something that would be the end of Thanos this, this is either 
Ben Travis fan fiction, or it's an early draft of the fan-created reboot of season eight of Game of Thrones. I have, I've, I've never seen that look on your face before, Ben. Your eyes blazed in dark triumph as you said, "Jump the nuts." Yeah. You're meant to be the best of us, the most innocent. Yeah. I feel we've corrupted you in a year at Empire. We have destroyed you. Uh, I think there are a couple of last things to talk about. One, let's talk about the new issue of Empire, which is on sale right now. It has come out this week. And, of course, we are the podcast arm of Empire Magazine. So here it is with Spider-Man, Far From Home on the cover. Who wrote that, I hear you ask? One of my favorite things this week, we uh, obviously revealed the cover, I think it was on Tuesday. And, obviously, Spider-Man is coming to London in this film. How exciting. Uh, So on the cover, you can see the shard in the background. And there are a lot of comments on social media of people saying... Oscorp Tower. Oscorp Tower is confirmed. Oh, in Spider-Man: what? Far From Home. What? It's like no, that's that's just that's just London. It's just a big pointy it's building, a massive shard on. Yeah. So we have we have Tom Holland, not that one, uh, or that one, or that one, or that one on the cover as Spider-Man, and we have Jake Gyllenhaal, yes, that one. And inside, I spoke to them both, and Ben also spoke a little bit to Tom Holland because I was uh, I was in. What was I doing when I couldn't speak to Tom Holland? Was I doing a? You were probably speaking to the Russos. Was there I? is so much Marvel in this issue, and a lot of non-Marvel, if that's not your thing. But mm. in this issue, we have Kevin Feige, the Russos, Marcus and McFeely. We have Tom Holland. We have Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, it's a, it's, it's a big crazy. Old, it's a big old jamboree. So anyway, the cover feature is Spider-Man: Far From Home. I was on set in London, and uh, I spoke to all the key players: director John Watts, producers Kevin Feige and Amy Pascal, Jake Gyllenhaal, Sandea. Tom Holland, all those people for a lovely cover feature about that movie. Then we also have a big old spoiler special reaction to Avengers Endgame, where Team Empire puts in their their tuppence worth, as well as the directors, Joe and Anthony Russo, and the writers, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely. Now, people are asking when our spoiler special interviews with those guys are going to go up, and we're hoping that those will go up next week. So mm-hmm. keep your ears peeled for those. Also, inside the issue, it is a fantastic issue. Yes, we have one more comic book movie <laughs> feature in there. And yes, I wrote that as well. Uh, it is the Dark Phoenix, the X-Men Dark Phoenix feature in which I spoke to Simon Kimberg and James McAvoy and Sophie Turner and Jessica Chastain and Michael Fassbender and all those people for the skinny, the inside skinny on the movie that may well prove to be the last X-Men movie. If you like dunking on The Last Stand, and let's face it, who doesn't enjoy dunking on X-Men The Last Stand? There's a lot of dunking on X-Men The Last Stand, rightfully so in that feature, including from Simon Kimberg. Yeah, I think he's even said in this podcast that obviously he feels that uh, they didn't get it quite right, the story Mm. of Jean Grey, which is one of the reasons why he's telling it again in Dark Phoenix. But yes, I had a lot of fun writing that one. We were on set of Men in Black International, the new film with Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson, so check that out. Olivia Wilde, who's debut as a director is Booksmart and uh, I haven't seen it but people who have say it's phenomenal it's so great I cannot wait to see it Uh, she wrote a piece for us about transitioning from actor to director and that's a really really cool piece there's a fascinating backstory on the legendary Hollywood agent Sue Mengers who basically made Ari Gold from Entourage look like the intern Essentially, she was a formidable lady who uh, survived, amongst other things, a plane hijacking. And as part of our ongoing Empire 30 celebrations, we sent Ian Nathan off to New Zealand to have a good old chat with Peter Jackson. Sir Peter Jackson himself 
talking about all kinds of stuff. And also we have things like the uh, first look from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, we have a great feature on The Last Temptation of Christ from Martin Scorsese. Yes, actual Martin Scorsese took time out to answer a whole bunch of questions about what is probably his most personal film. Uh, there's tons of great stuff inside the issue. And I strongly, strongly urge you to pick it up from all good or evil news agents right now. Pay my wages, you motherfuckers. You might even find a copy at Oscorp Tower. It's been confirmed. Yeah. Confirmed. It's on the cover of Empire Magazine. 100%. There it is. There it is. Uh, so yeah, very, very exciting indeed. Yes, and as you hinted, I um, had a little chat with Tom Holland about all the times that he spoiled things in Marvel movies. Yes. And most of it was him saying, I don't think I've spoiled anything. And then I'd say what about this? And he go, oh, yeah, 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 I did spoil that, to be fair. It was great. So yeah, it was a lot of fun reading that. Uh, so, yes, pick it up right now if you can. And we're going to finish off the news section with, of course, some sad news. There were, there were a couple of deaths uh, during the week. Uh, Peggy Lipton, who was perhaps best known as Norma in Twin Peaks, passed away at the age of 72. She was also the mother of Rashida Jones. And, of course, the legendary, iconic Doris Day died at the age of 97. We're very, very sad indeed to hear of the passing of them both. Okay, time now for our final guests this week. Beats comes out on Friday today. In fact, if you're listening to it today on the day the podcast goes up and is a fascinating, very, very funny, very, very emotional movie as well about two kids growing up in Scotland who decide to bunk off and visit an illegal rave in 1994. The film is set in 1994, by the way. It's not like they get hold of a time machine and travel back to 1994. That would be weird. The film stars Lorne MacDonald, and it's directed by Brian Welsh, and they were both in this pod booth just about an hour ago, having a good old chat with me about the movie, about acting, about growing up, all that sort of stuff. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the co-writer and director of Beats, Brian Welsh, and the star of Beats, Laura McDonald. How are you both? Well, thanks. Cheers for having us. Good, good, good. Glad to have you here. Uh, Lauren, you've had quite the day. You were just telling me off, off microphone you've uh, you've had a lolly, ice lolly and your bag broke. Yeah, I got a free ice lolly, strawberry and mint, pretentious, it was crap. you got to fill me in there. How, uh, how did this happen? Outside the King's Cross, they were handing them out. So obviously, are they still there? Because if they are, <laughs> may run. Honestly, honestly, sa- uh, save it, save it. I'll get you a calippo and just dip it in some pims and it'd be much nicer. <laughs> And then my bag broke, so I'm going to have to get a new one. Okay, good. Ah, oh, God, that's the rigours of, uh, of building up to release, I guess. This is all the... It's the pressure, it's everything's, getting to me. Yeah, it is, you're breaking your bags. <laughs> Brian, what about yourself? This is, you've, you've been on a quite a long journey now with this movie. It was at the Glasgow Film Fest, we were just talking off, off mic, you were at the Belfast Film Festival as well, but, uh, you know, now it's, it's happening, this is a week of release. It's so, coming so, out this week, yeah, yeah May 17th. Has that, been, has that date yeah. been on your calendar, ringed and circled? It's been on the calendar for a while, and we've just been like anxiously watching what other films might be coming out, out up that are going to like be battling against us at the box office. But I think we're in a pretty good place, so I'm, uh, fingers crossed. And yeah, we've had a fair journey to get here. We actually, prior to that, we did Rotterdam and Slam Dance, and and then Glasgow, Dublin, Belfast. But I'm I'm now on a tour for the next ten nights, going up and down the country. I'm on day three of that, and I'm already totally burnt out. <laughs> one, of the, one of the challenges with it all is we've agreed for quite a lot of the screenings that because of the, obviously the nature of the film and the music in the film, yeah. we would put on a, a techno party afterwards. So, right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of I'm quite a few you, I'm quite a few in, and we've got a big one tonight, and then I'm supposed to do the radio the morning after, so I'm going to just sneak out the back door <laughs> tonight. Uh, we'll see, we'll see what happens. <laughs> the film itself is 
Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. And where did it start from for you? Because it started off as a, as a play, mm. and then you, know, you co-wrote the adaptation of the play. Sure. Can you talk us through that, how that yeah, happened? Yeah, I mean, I have a friend of mine, her partner was artistic director at the, at the Bush Theatre in, mm. in London, and... Uh, I didn't know Kieran or his work at that point, mm. but she she t- told me that there was this young uh, Scottish guy doing this incredible play, Beats, which was just one guy with a microphone, uh, a, a DJ playing some music and some visuals playing behind him. And she says, you know, I think you need to go along with this because it sounds very much like it's uh, it's about your youth in, in Scotland. <laughs> and uh, I went along and I was just blown away by the intensity of the performance the energy of the, this this sort of sense that you'd gone on this big night out in the in the theater with with everyone and and also yeah that sense of like god that's really kind of like articulating something really profound and meaningful about my youth in a way that I don't quite have the words or self knowledge to do at the moment <laughs> you know and uh, and when I came out I realized that you know there were many other people who well pretty much everyone who watched it have said the same thing and that didn't matter what what kind of generation they'd grown up in. So I, I knew that there was something really universal about the story. But also, crucially, I'm always sort of striving to tell films about that have something meaningful to say about society and the, mm. the, the world that we live in. And what Cian did brilliantly was, you know, weave the sociopolitical context with the sort of criminal justice bill and the, the uh, post-industrial Scotland and how rave culture in some way was like a subconscious reaction to bigger things that were happening in the mm. country, you know, post, mm. post, post Thatcher and through the years of John Major. So um, so how do you go from that? Well, I, I then sort of be- begged Kieran to be my pal and to, to spend <laughs> some time, you know, talking and uh, and we, we got on really quite instantly and a, a strong kind of working relationship and friendship was flourished out of that. And the big challenge has then been, okay, so how do we take this one-man performance that has only a few characters into it and, and adapt it for the screen. And a, a, a lot of then personal experience, if you like, kind of came, 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 <laughs> a lot of inspirations from the past came into that process. And we just had a real laugh doing it as well, you know. It was always, yeah. always really looked forward to the weeks that we'd spend together because, you know, the majority of the time we just roll about laughing at um, some of the stuff we were coming up with. So much stuff that never made it in the film. I think there's another film somewhere that kind of outtakes. You know? I was going to ask, actually, because yeah. the, the film feels very improvisational at the time. So the relationship between you know, Spanner and, and Jono, the, mm. the, the two leads of the movie, that feels like it's something that there's obviously a script there, but it feels like you were playing an awful lot as well. Oh, well, that's, I think that's a really big compliment because not really. Oh, really? <laughs> We've pretty much stuck word for word to the script, but that's like, that just shows how good writers Kieran and Brian are that I mean I remember picking up the script and really feeling like I've not read something which feels so natural in, in, yeah. in these kind of boys voices like reading it and going like that is exactly how I spoke when I was 16, 17 years old so then when it came to going into filming it there's maybe like intonations and slight you know interesting ways that you think oh I can play this for a slightly more for a comic value and a, and a line that is actually quite tragic or a line that's quite tragic and then trying to eke some of the comedy out of it and, and playing around you know with with those things but in terms of the actual dialogue it was all there so I just stuck to the script there's probably about two or three moments which are which are things we worked out in the day and, and, and tweaked but really it's 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 what the what, what we picked up basically mm-hmm. and went yeah this is good yeah so how did you go about Brian expanding it and you know, did you always want to focus on this central relationship, this this Spanner and Jono? 
relationship that he, underpins the movie? Yeah, I mean, I think we were we knew that it was really a, a, at its core a sort of love story between these two best friends, and a mm. uh, big part of the job was then bu- building all of the kind of relationships uh, around them that are important. For example, Robert, the stepfather, and. In the film is a completely unconnected character to John, so bringing him into the family environment was a big, big choice. Also, the three uh, girls, Wendy, Cat, and Laura, who are just an absolute joy in the film and, and are, are, are the, the gatekeepers to this world, if you like, for the boys. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they are all sort of new characters. Um, but I think the ideas and the themes of the play are still very much present in the film, and so for that reason, you know, I think it's a I think it's a strong adaptation. Mm. And one of the things that really drew me to working with Kieran as well uh, in terms of like the writing on the page was that he has a way of expressing Scottish dialogue yeah. in its written form in a, in a very perfect and precise way. And that is, I think that's why it's been so easy for like young actors like uh, Lauren and Christian to get their heads mm. round mm. it because they understand totally. instantly just by looking at, uh, you know, a, a Y and like an A, you know, <laughs> that, how that should roll off the tongue and yeah. and um, and Ken, and Ken Ken's used an awful lot. Ken's as well used an awful lot. I come from Falkirk, where Ken is a constant in our <laughs> in our <laughs> way of expressing ourselves, and it, well, sort of from the central belt to the east coast, really, Ken's <laughs> a common yeah common term. Yeah, um, but that that relationship. <laughs> That relationship, Lauren, between uh, yourself and Christian, who plays who plays Jono, is that something that you worked on? You get a lot of rehearsal time as well, because it feels so authentic. It feels so lived in. Well, I suppose it's authentic because me and Christian are pals and were pals before we started filming. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that it kind of panned out was that when we were still looking for a, a, a Jono, and I was and I was onto it quite early, I suggested Christian, who was off doing a plane in America. And I was kind of pushing for Christian because I I knew that with what like two weeks or what, three mm. weeks or something before we started filming, like it was really really soon. Brian kept saying to me, "Aye, it's a, a Ray film. Aye, it's about it's got this and this and this." But fundamentally, the thing that we need to get right is the friendship between these two boys. Mm, yeah. And I was just like, "Well, there's a shortcut to that." And reading the script, I genuinely had Christian in my head, just been like. I think visually we'd look good on screen together. I think the chemistry-wise, all that kind of stuff. And and I, I was just like, do I say? Do I do I mention it? You know, I was. It's kind of putting myself on the line as well, as yeah. you know, because he could have been pish. Imagine, <laughs> imagine he rocked up and he was just rotten like throughout. You know, that would have been it. <laughs> well, presumably, Brian, you didn't just cast him on. on no, no, no. And I, I, no, so. I mean, Lauren. Lauren and I didn't know each other that well at the, the, when we started casting the film, but we got to know each other pretty well, and he could see that, uh, 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 you know, once I'd seen Lauren play Spanner, the huge challenge for us was then finding, like, a boy who had the acting chops to play alongside him, to be the kind of straight guy alongside this, you know, energetic, gangly, hilarious, um, emotional presence. Uh, and Lauren doesn't know this either, but I was getting to the point where I was thinking, we're going to have to pull this because if we Shit. don't have that central relationship, there's no point in making the film. You know, right. if, yeah, if, yeah. That, if, if the chemistry isn't right. I think I said to you eventually, do you, do you know anyone? That's what happened. Yeah, yeah. And then he says, well, actually, it's funny you come to mention that. There is this one, <laughs> there is this one guy. And then I pulled him out of my suitcase. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Christian was in Texas doing the theatre adaptation of Let the Right One In. And so I started to speak to him on Skype and... Um, 
he looked a bit old, man. That was the thing. Like, and I, I saw I saw him on Skype, and he put on a bit of beef when he well, was out there. It's because and... he'd been making that good theatre, you know, abroad money. So he, <laughs> right, was, so he was just out like, it like... Was beers and and burgers every night. He'd been letting the wrong ones in. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. That's why you've got a podcast, mate. <laughs> and uh, so I says, listen, man, I, I need you to just like try and shed a, a, a few wee pounds before you come back and Aye. get in the rehearsal room. And he came in and and. Sure enough, when we when we did the first audition, stroke reads together, it was very clear that the boys already had an affection for each other and a, yeah. and a, and a strong friendship. And so yeah. you can't; it's very hard to cast that, you know. As if yeah. that's just an instant thing, you know. So um, we were lucky and blessed, and you know, thank God it all worked out that way, really. You know. And so, uh, Brian, you were struggling to find a, a Jono, but you found your spanner. So yeah. to speak, right away, pretty much. I'm guessing. Oh, I wouldn't say right away. I mean, Lauren initially came in and uh, he was reading for Jono, and he sent mm. me he sent me a hilarious uh, self tape. That it's the only time I've ever had a self tape that was scored. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, you've, but, you've got you've got to stand out from the crowd. You know, so, you've, so, you've got so, to do some bold things. <laughs> so he performed with the soundtrack from the David Attenborough like wildlife show in the yeah, background. Planet Earth. Uh, Planet Earth. Yeah. Not, nothing says beats like the soundtrack from the David Attenborough <laughs> documentary. It. Well, it's one of these things where they go like, um, do the scenes and then you know show us a bit. Like do a, a minute where you just talk about yourself. <laughs> I was like, oh no, they're the worst things ever. So I started off going like. Hello, my name's Lauren, blah, 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 and saying that stuff. But I deliberately had Planet Earth in the background and just, like, turned the volume up on the TV <laughs> when it got to the bit where it goes, dun, 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 epic, massive, epic bit. And then I just, like, put my hands in there and was like, the greatest self-tape in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and that got me the job. <laughs> to be fair, yeah, to amazing. be fair, we saw it. But a different job, in fairness. Mm. Yeah. To be fair, yeah. we saw it, there was a few years going, who is this wanker? Yeah, like, it was a risk. Who is this it arrogant prick? <laughs> right. Yeah, fair enough. We oh. must get him in. <laughs> That's amazing. I have to say that. Uh, in terms of the other stuff, I mean, you, you know, the Rave College sitting this in 1994, around the time of that criminal justice bill, mm. which is still, as the film says at the end, is in effect today. Yes. That's clearly a, a choice you and you and Kieran have made in 1994. Why specifically hone in on, on that period? We have this throughout the film. You have Tony Blair on the uh, yeah. you have different politics, you know, on the on the edge on the periphery of the film. Well, maybe for like listeners who don't know about the criminal yeah. justice and public order bill stroke act was that it was a lengthy piece of legislation but but one of the sort of sections um was an attempt by the government to outlaw these rave parties that were happening illegal rave parties that were happening up and down the country Mm. and the exact wording of the legislation was to sort of outlaw banish gatherings of 20 or more people around music characterized wholly or predominantly by the emission of a succession of repetitive beats so it was this crazy overly wordy attempt at trying to like grapple with and understand this thing that they just have no fucking clue about you know Mm. I mean that they they fear yeah Yeah. that they fear and I mean all music (laughs) can be characterised in that way really if you you think about it so that's the kind of context for the story that the story's taking place in the year when this this piece of legislation's been pushed through and Jono's stepdad is a cop Mm. and these parties are going on all around the country and there's a kind of cat and mouse thing going on with the cops so you know as I said the Criminal Justice Bill and Act was about more than just yeah. uh, an attack on rave culture it was an attack on all kinds of other sort of alternative um, 
And this was outsiders, a, if you like. You who know? introduced the bill? Was it was it was the Tory government? It was wasn't the it? Tory yeah. government. Yeah, it was John John Major. Um, yeah. But you know, it brought the end to like travelling communities and the way that travelling communities used to be allowed to move around the country. Um, you know, recently it was used against the Extinction Rebellion protesters in London a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And also it had an impact on horror movie fans as well, because I think it, uh, Mark Kermode told me about this the other day. Okay. I didn't know about okay. this, but the, there's a clause in it in relation to the Video Recording Act or something. Interesting. And there was cer- yeah, yeah, there's certain horror films that all of a sudden became illegal at that time as well. So, what? Yeah. So it was That's like mad. it was like an attack on the outsiders. Do you yeah. know what I mean by the cons- by yeah. The, uh, so unlike the Tory government, they're <laughs> <laughs> usually so generous and I know. let's but, say fair. But also know? crucially, you know, 1994 is the year that Tony Blair becomes leader of the Labour Party, and yeah. he was um, he was in favour of these uh, steps that eroded our civil liberties as well. Like when the Iraq War happened and the protests were happening in London, busloads of people were being sent. Um, back from various towns up and down the country, and that was the piece of paper that was was being used. So it was a sort of it was like an at- attack on um, freedom of expression, freedom of yeah. expression, yeah. And, and people gathering to protest against things that they disagree with the government's doing. So, mm. and Lauren, I, I believe I I think Brian was about thirteen. I think you were about two. Correct. Yeah. When that bill was introduced. Yeah, I was very <laughs> present at the scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you were uh, instrumental, weren't you? You were yeah, that's right. uh, at the heart of the thing. They used to just hold me up like Simba and just they just dance around me. With a rattle in your hand. Yeah, it was a kind of wicker man situation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's mad. But um, is this culture, the, the rave culture that's explored in the film, is that something that's, that's big for you? I, well, just like I was saying, we're both huge lovers of music and, mm. and, and a variety of different kinds of music and um, I've always liked, you know, Prodigy and stuff like that. And, mm. um yeah, all that kind of music, but then had never necessarily given it like the proper time, other than outside of like parties and raves and stuff like that, where you go along and go like this music's banging to to dance to, and then but you're usually drunk that you don't go like oh I should really uh, find this on Spotify later. Um, I'll just it. So yeah, exactly. Some guy in the middle just holding up his phone. Shh, shh. <laughs> um, so something that doesn't that work with techno music. I don't know if you know. Does that, it not? But, well, it doesn't work because they, they always fuck about with the the tempo. So uh, the te- oh, right, yeah. so the waves never line up in, oh, the, in, okay. the, in the software. So That's it's quite, quite often cool. you're trying to find a a classic techno record, but it's being played like at 120 BPM, whereas uh-huh. it's supposed to be played at 135. So, so Shazam it, just goes, I don't know, yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah. yeah. So the the voyage of like techno music discovery is a lot harder. Than yeah, <laughs> but that makes it uh, kind of makes it cooler because it's it keeps it in its time. You know, it keeps yeah. it uh, in a kind of like got to get your records out. Yeah. Um, but what one thing that I've really enjoyed about this film is then like you know what you like to do is a bit of research, and Brian was really good at sending stuff to us. A lot of um. Uh, Scottish music as well with ultrasonic and that was like a something I really enjoyed was like whether it was just in in like uh, just dancing about my room and stuff like that before we'd be filming or for the first couple of weeks of filming Christian actually slept on my sofa because he didn't have a place to stay so we'd be like getting up in the morning and blasting beats through the through the flat before heading to work so all that kind of stuff does kind of work you know yeah. I do think it it fuels into filming well that music's absolutely like the pumping heart and soul of the boys isn't yeah, it that, yeah that exactly sort of so early got, happy hardcore stuff yeah. that they listen to at the beginning of the story and yeah. the, the voyages into all this big Detroit techno yeah. later in the story yeah. I love the scene in the back at the beginning where they're listening to something and they're calling each other up <laughs> to <laughs> share the discovery and to, to share that moment which is 
Something that just wouldn't happen these days, would it? You know, the MP3s. I feel, I feel like I sound like a really old guy with MP3s and, you know, your, no, your gramophones and it's whatnot. It's true, though. It's yeah. true. Things are, like, precious, you yeah. know? I was saying, like, I'm at that age where I do genuinely believe, and I say it to a lot of people that are my age, going, like, I think we, we were lucky. I think we just missed when it started to get just a little bit too intense. Like, I'm the age of, like, Bebo. <laughs> so we're really tame in terms of, like, you know, where the, where the world has gone. Embarrassingly, um, I don't even know what Bebo is. But you shouldn't. <laughs> See, I'm part of an elite. That's right. But um, but that the whole thing of like you know going round to your mates and yeah. knocking on his door, and if yeah. he wasn't in, then you just had to walk home. Right? You know, <laughs> like that's something that you just don't have anymore. And, I, and you know, I, I remember those days. So that's something that I think uh, I I'll could... meet you outside our price at two p.m. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you would wait. Yeah. Till three. Yeah, exactly. And then they would show up. Uh, yeah. No... <laughs> oh my god. Um, Brian, the film's in black and white. Yes. Uh, why did you Why did you make that choice? Well, I, I don't want to kind of give any too many spoilers away, but the film does voyage into mm-hmm. colour at a certain point. There's a, there's an almost um, Wizard of Oz like transition <laughs> to colour, and uh, we talked about that early on, and that was that was a choice that we'd made quite early on. So the, the, you know, the early drafts of the script were, were going around with the words black and white on the first or second page, and we would advise quite strongly to fucking erase those two words, otherwise we would never get the imagine, film financed. I can so, imagine you were. Yeah. So it was a bit of a secret, really, until yeah. uh, until uh, I mean, day two of the, the the shoot, I was you know always watching the rushes back in black and white, but it wasn't until we delivered the cut that that everybody realised. All oh, right, you've we've financed a black and white film, <laughs> right? <laughs> Thanks for telling us. It's, not, like, it's, it's not, kind of black and white, but there's a bit of colour in it as well. So, um, and it's not silent. It's not like no, it's not no. like a Chapman film or a Lloyd no, film. No, although Wild Bunch did distribute the artist, and uh, <laughs> so I, that was my kind of argument with them because they're our international sales agents, and they says, "Yeah, but it's black and white and silent." I was like, oh, right. So you've got to go like full hog. Oh, right. <laughs> That's not, that makes sense, doesn't it? It really does. Um, but it just worked for so many reasons. You know, I think it, it nails nails the period and uh, mm. it, it brings you a lot closer to to the boys, but also, crucially, it kind of mythologises the story in some way. That it, I think it elevates it from feeling like a social realist rave movie which was mm. something that I didn't really have much interest in making it I think there's something a bit more kind of like heightened and, and mythic about about the quality of the storytelling so yeah. got to let you go now but uh, what's next for you Lauren what's, what's coming up oh I've deliberately made sure that I was free this summer because the Women's World Cup's coming up and I want to go over to France and uh, support them because Scotland not? I don't know if you know but Scotland don't get into tournaments that I'm, much. A, I'm aware of that yeah so when we do we have to make we make, make use of it and now Andy Murray's on his way out so <laughs> we've got nothing basically so I'm going to go and support the women and hopefully bring back the World Cup uh, Brian what about yourself just uh, you know not in any great rush I'm working with Kieran mm-hmm. uh, we've got a little bit of money to do drafts of a couple of treatments so we're, we're writing in a couple of Scottish stories again uh, similar tone Contemporary stories, though, and that's about all that I'm going to say. About them for now, so. Yeah, better to be secretive. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, guys, it's been a pleasure having you in, and uh, best luck with the release. Thanks Good very much. Okay, so that was Brian Welsh and Lauren McDonald, and we'll be discussing beats in the review section in just a few minutes. But right now, we are delighted to welcome back 
that August organ, The Economist, as sponsors of this week's show. It is, of course, the magazine that is over 170 years old. It is legendary, and it is your one-stop shop for incredible, thought-provoking articles about economics, politics, and entertainment, and it'll keep you updated on the state of the world right now. And once again, we have an incredible offer for Empire Podcast listeners, a free print issue of The Economist. And I mean it, absolutely free, gratis. And once you get your hands on said free print issue, you'll be able to enjoy articles such as the one I read in the most recent edition, dated May 11th, about the incredibly arduous life of deep-sea divers who find work repairing oil rigs in the North Sea. It's dangerous isolated, lonely work that involves them living in steel containers deep beneath the ocean for weeks at a time. And if those containers should crack in any way, well, basically, you don't want to think about that. But it can be very, very well-paid work. There's a story in there about how some divers will order new cars, even Porsches, to be waiting for them when they get back to shore because they're so well compensated because such dangerous work. But they're finding that work has become harder and harder in the current economic and environmental climate. And with my movie fan had on. All I could think about was how this would make for a great film. So, Paul Greengrass, if you're listening, and I have no reason to suspect that you're not, get on this immediately. And if you want to get your hands on that free print copy of The Economist and stimulate your mind nuggets with all kinds of good stuff, well, it couldn't be simpler. Just text the word MOVIES MOVIES to the following number 78070 and soon you will be augmenting your mind juices with all sorts of incredible facts. You cannot say fairer than that. So thanks once again to The Economist for sponsoring the show. And now it's time to move on to the reviews section of the show. And we will start off with John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum with our very own John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellend, James Dyer. (laughs) Thank you. That's good. I like that link. Appreciate that. Uh, Yes, this is the third in the John Wick saga, picking up exactly where John Wick 2 left off, where John, excommunicado, on the run, but with a new dog, uh, running through the streets of New York with every hit man, hit woman, and hit child out to end him. I mean, this is exactly what you expect, isn't it? Like, is this, this is the most John Wick John Wick has ever been. There's more continental, there's more mythology into the sort of assassin's underworld. There's more violence than ever before. The violent set pieces are, I would argue, the most incredible they've ever been. It's absolutely off the chain. Absolutely loved it. And I think this is one of these things where John Wick, does John Wick, I don't think John Wick polarizes people in the same way that things like, taken did that one man army revenge genre i think has a lot of people who don't like it i like to think john wick transcends that because it's basically a fantasy and at times it's almost also a comedy but an incredibly po-faced like really deadpan comedy Mm. and this is exciting it's thrilling it's incredibly choreographed it's occasionally hilarious it's always entertaining i think if i had one criticism about this i would say the plot isn't as focused as it has been i think john wick one the plot is so clear and so simple and so precise and two which is a little bit grander broaden the scale a little bit Still quite focused. I think this one becomes a little nebulous in places. I think it starts when he's on the run. It's very, very clear. But as he goes off, and we won't talk about any of the potential spoilers because we have a spoiler special coming, and frankly, you can hear about it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, as he goes off to, shall we say, give himself another chance or find a way through his current predicament, the story becomes a little bit, oh, 
shall we say, interesting. But it all comes full circle and there's some amazing set pieces at the end. One, my very, very favourite in this is there is a knife fight in a knife shop <laughs> where there are many, many knives. There's so many And it knives. is not only the goriest thing that's ever been in John Wick, but it's absolutely incredible. I think the thing, when you were mentioning Taken there... It doesn't have the, like, nastiness or the griminess. No. And all of the, like, really intense violence in it (laughs) comes from a love of the showmanship of, like, we're going to blow you away with these crazy moves and the impact of something rather than throwing blood everywhere. It's it's like people being hit by things and falling over and the thud of when someone gets hit (laughs) by a knife. There There isn't any, like, real kind of bloodiness to it yeah. it's just the like oof oof i have never been i i've rarely been in a more vocal press huh. screening though there's a moment early on involving a book oh, um, book foo yes i like the, the library fight. the book is not being read the book no. is being used for other purposes yeah. and um the entire room just went oof <laughs> at the same time it was kind of amazing and what is great about that in the same way that like a horror film does or a really good comedy it unites the room. You are all on yeah. that ride together. And it's so worth seeking this out in the cinema because it's yeah. it's so built to be seen in a room with people and to feel like you're being punched in the face in the best way for two solid hours. And this is once again directed <laughs> by Chad Stahelski who did John Wick 2 and co-directed John Wick 1 with David Leach. And he, who has been in a past life, a stunt double for Keanu Reeves. He's a choreographer. He's an incredibly accomplished martial artist. And his whole thing with the John Wick films is master shots. Like, he sits the camera well back. There are no quick cuts. This is not taken. And Keanu Reeves, who's an extraordinary physical sort of action star and an extraordinary martial artist. Specimen. Just, uh, specimen, indeed. Goes to town on people. And the choreography, it's its 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 dance, it's ballet, it is marvellous. Also, more dogs who, as yes. we have established, are going around yes. crunching people's nuts. They are. There's nut oh. crunching all over the place. It's... <laughs> Yeah, the do- the dog glorious. fight uh, is uh, is quite. These are these are Halle Berry's character has two mm-hmm. attack dogs, and they be crunching nuts. I think it's worth addressing that because she's trained them to, to just, crunch like, nuts, to crunch nuts, and just to like grab people's limbs and rag them around, which <laughs> makes for amazing action spectacle. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think you were saying it's like more this, more that. It's just it is just more, but in a good way. And I think all of the action sequences, considering it's it is, they are fight sequences yeah. primarily. But across two hours, they all have something different to them. They do. I, There's a different I texture. never was bored. Mm. I was never like, oh, I've had too much fighting now. There's I will never, never have enough. No, exactly. Mm. They all have different elements to them. And I liked that it tips its hat to things like the villainess and the raid. Oh, two of the guys in oh, the raid yes. are in this. And Keanu fights them both at the same time. <laughs> and it's so great. Yeah. It's very, very good. I, I, I enjoyed this immensely. Mm-hmm. Lots of be- people being thrown through glass in a very Jackie Chan way. There's a lot of smashed <laughs> glass, and I don't know. It's just so in love with those amazing like fight movies, and just wants to give you the best two hours. And I had the best two hours, and now I want more. So I think it did its <laughs> did its job. Ben, you're so bloodthirsty. There you go. Yeah, but that's the thing. I don't want blood. I just want people being like mauled without blood and, and that- going. Argh! And having their nuts crunched. And having their nuts crunched. Mm. We gave this film four gold coins. We still haven't established how, what those coins are actually uh, More than worth. either one of us gets paid. 
<laughs> I have one of those coins upstairs. I don't know whether I'm going to spend it on a yeah. coffee or putting a hit on James. Or yeah, James and I have one as well. I don't. I don't think that we will be able to. Well, I don't have a mortgage, but uh, I don't think we'll be able to pay off. If I had a mortgage, I wouldn't be able to pay it off with the, the coin from Warner Brothers publicity <laughs> department somehow. But you never know. Might what, you give mean it that's a go. not legal tender? Amazingly, no. Oh. You try going to any hotel. <laughs> and just go to the Mayfair and oh, just yeah. be like, I have one of these. Uh, yeah, I thought this was uh, pretty terrific. Uh, I have a very strange relationship with these movies in that I saw the first John Wick and didn't particularly fall for his charms. And it wasn't until the second viewing that I really kind of glocked into the aesthetic. That glocked Tehels- in. Glocked into the aesthetic that Tehelski and Leach back then were, uh, were setting up. But I loved John Wick Chapter 2. I think that it's a, a better film than the original. And the action scenes in this movie is the first time that I've seen a traditional Hollywood action movie approach the intensity of something like The Raid or The Villainess. And it's not just because you know you have two guys from The Raid 2 in here, you know, Chechep and, and Yayan. It's just something about the, the camera work and the way that you can see it's the real guys doing it. You know, I'm sure there's some jiggery-pokery going on with some of the stuff that Keanu does because a lot of it's very, very dangerous. I'm sure he's not entirely 100% carrying out fight sequences whilst riding a motorbike at 80 miles an hour. No, but no he the, did. And yeah. he, he actually stuck that knife in that guy's eye. That's true. He's blind now. <laughs> he has that's, killed that's, many, that's many people. But honestly, it's uh, it's really exciting, really visceral stuff. And it looks beautiful. That's mm. the thing about these movies as action films. Because action films can tend to be, I don't know, kind of just run-of-the-mill visually. And these films, you know, these are shot by Dan Lauston, who is a fantastic cinematographer. He's worked with Guillermo del Toro on a number of films, including Crimson Peak and The Shape of Water. And these films, these look tremendous. Mm. They neon, are so, a lot of glass, a lot yeah, of light. Beautiful stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, you do get the impression, if I'm brutally honest, that when they made this film, they sat around the table and went, what would be really fucking cool to do on screen? Yeah. And it was like, book foo, bike foo, horse foo, glass foo. Mm. And it was just like, yep, yeah, yep, let's though. do it. Let's, now, like, let's write a story that does this. It's that constant sense of like self-one-upmanship. It's yeah. just being like, yeah. how can we make it even like crazier than the last time? And not in a like, oh, just make it bigger and better. Like they really have drilled into the details of like, what would be cool and incredibly hard to do? <laughs> and let's just, let's just do it. Mm. And when you get to see the fruits of that, it's so entertaining and it's it's so great having films like that that are so willing and kind of desperate's the wrong word because it sounds needy, but like to just really like give you the best two hours. Mm. Well, we uh, Chris and I had a long old chat with uh, with Stahelski about mm. this, and you'll be able to hear that very soon on the John Wick Three spoiler special. And we don't have to pay any gold coins to you listen don't. to that. No, okay, yeah. that's good. Also, if you want to, if you want to slide some cash my way, I'm sure I can find an extra five minutes that hits the cutting room floor. I'll I'll range up for you, Ben. Uh, I'll just stick to the regular edition. Damn you, Ben. Why yeah. must you betray me at every juncture? Uh, so yes, four stars then for John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. And I'm loath to say that this spoiler special will be up on Monday because I don't think it will be because we haven't recorded it. <laughs> Mainly, that's the main obstacle. Uh, but we will record it at some point next week and get it up for you as soon as possible. So four stars then for John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. And that brings us on then, of course, to Beats. Now, I'm the only person here who's seen Beats. So I will say that uh, this is not a movie that on the surface was made for me. This may shock you, but I'm somewhat of a milquetoast when, <laughs> guy when it comes to uh, my musical taste and to my social life. And even back, even in 1994 when this movie was set, I was not uh, one for the, the pubbing and the clubbing and the raving and the whatnot. And so 
I went into this movie with some trepidation. I thought it would be lots of loud noises and and music that I I find personally. You know, if you find it cool, that's fine. But I would you know I would have been going. Can you turn it down, please? It's a little bit loud. But I found this movie fantastic. Actually, it's a very very touching story about friendship and coming of age in Scotland in 1994. It stars these these two young kids. In fact, they're probably not young at all in real life. They're probably in their 40s or 50s. But uh, Lorne MacDonald and uh, Christian Ortega play Spanner and Jono. And Spanner is ostensibly from the wrong side of the tracks. And Jono is from a more middle-class family. And his mother, played by Laura Fraser from Breaking Bad, and uh, most recently, of course, Better Call Saul, is about to remarry and move away. And so this friendship uh, is about to be broken up. And so they decide to have one big last send-off by going to an illegal rave somewhere outside the city. And I thought this was a really, really funny, beautifully observed movie. Great performances throughout. And, you know, and even the music was was fine. I mean, it's, it's, no, it's no REM or Crowded House, but what can you do, guys? Not everyone else could be on the bleeding edge of music like me. Can we have a bit of the uh, Lighthouse family in this? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> lighthouse family? That's, 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 that's too hardcore for me, Ben. <laughs> Sorry. Be gentler, please. Oh my God. No, please, no. Uh, but yeah, I thought this was absolutely terrific and uh, it's, it looks beautiful as well. It's shot in black and white and as you heard there in the interview with uh, with Brian Welsh, there are reasons for that that will become apparent later on in the film. So it's a 1994 set Black and white indie, but you're it's about not to say, I wasn't born in 1994. <laughs> is this where you're about to say that? Because if you are, you can fuck off. I was. I mean, I was three, but I was born. Oh, that's fine. Okay, um, you're allowed back in again. But I was at university. What, <laughs> <laughs> what a fitting week when we've also got Kevin Smith on the uh, on the podcast this week. Yeah, because that's the week that that's the week that's the year that Clark's came out. It was. There we go. Uh, so I thought this this film's terrific. I would strongly urge you to go and see it if you have Avengers Endgamed yourself into a stupor or if John Wick Chapter 3 isn't your bag or you've already seen it. So go and check out Beats. Uh, I've got a feeling this one's going to be a bit of a cult favourite over the next few years. And finally this week, we have Birds of Passage or The Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. No, wait, that's, that's next year. Birds of Passage. Ben? Yes, this is directed by Ciro Guerra who did uh, Embrace of the Serpent the other year, which is a really, really great film if you've not seen that. Another black and white sort of indie film um, mm. kind of based around indigenous communities. And this is a similar vein. This is native Colombian indigenous communities and the impact of the drugs trade in the 70s and the kind of violence and turbulence that that brought to those communities. If you liked Embrace of the Serpent, it's definitely worth yep, checking out. Film. Four stars for this one. Four stars indeed, and you can check out the review for that on the Empire Online website. Uh, and that is it for this week's Empire podcast. How exciting. Join us next week for more film-related fun, where we'll be joined by Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver, stars of the aforementioned Olivia Wilde movie, Booksmart. That's exciting. I'm looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. Should be a lot of fun. Until then, until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye from the foul mouth whirlwind that is Ben Travis. Goodbye. Really playing against type there, Ben. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is goodbye from Pilot TV host James Dyer. Bye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to chomp some Muppet nuts. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.